there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T for C. If you're interested in visual effects or in storytelling, then this is the episode for you because my next guest works as a visual effects artist and executive producer with credits on dozens of movies, including Mission Impossible. And he's an Emmy Award-winning writer, actor, and storyteller who has hosted over a 100 live events for the Moth Radio Hour. But before I introduce you to Corey Rosen, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's time for Coffee's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays and gives you an exclusive window into the episodes and the professions we're going to be featuring that week, and it is so easy to do. You just head on over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org. And the sign up box is right there on the homepage. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Corey Rosen, a visual effects artist and executive producer whose credits on dozens of movies include Mission Impossible, several Star Wars films, and Disney's A Christmas Carol. Corey has also taught at NYU and the Academy of Art University, and he's written and directed television commercials and Emmy Award-winning short films. And as if that wasn't impressive enough, Corey's other passion is storytelling, and he has hosted more than 100 live events for the Moth Radio Hour on National Public Radio ever since he won the first ever Bay Area Moth Story Slam in 2014. Corey performs at Bats Improv, one of the world's foremost centers for improvisational theater. He's written for Comedy Central, Jim Henson Productions, and Lucasfilm. He's a creative director at Tippett Studio, a two-time Oscar-winning media production company currently writing screenplays for theme park attractions around the world. And last but certainly not least, he is an on-air personality for Alice Radio's The Sarah and Vinny Show, which is the number one rated commercial morning show in the San Francisco area. Corey, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you still caffeinated and ready to go? I am. Hello, Java Junkies. Oh my God, I love that energy. Well, we should (laughs) say it's a little earlier. You're on the West Coast, so your afternoon is just getting started here. Mm -hmm. Nice. Never too early for some Java. Never. And it's also never too late. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, unless unless you have trouble sleeping, of course. That is true. Yeah, then, yeah. then absolutely there is a too late. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Well, before we get into storytelling and the do's and don'ts involved with being an effective, let alone an award-winning storyteller, I mm. would love for us to kick things off, Corey, by talking about the other special talent you have, and that is working as a visual effects artist. Mm. 
And not just a run-of-the-mill visual effects artist, which would be (laughs) me, for example, if I were to do this, because I have no background whatsoever. And I mean, there are plenty of people who are visual effects artists, but not working on films like Mission Impossible and Star Wars. Mm. I mean, that's like like the Mount Everest of Mm. visual effects artistry. It doesn't get bigger than that. Well, there's there's a lot of movies being made today. I'll, I'll, I'll be a little humble. I think I've worked on some big movies, and I think that there's a lot of amazing stuff that's being done by so many people in so many places right now that I think it's actually a really, it's a, it's a growing field. There's a lot of opportunities for a lot of people that are interested in, in doing this kind of work. Well, that is an awesome tee up for me to say to our young listeners, if you are interested in breaking into visual effects artistry, check out the show notes for this episode to see if Corey's Espresso Shots interview has already dropped because that's where he talks about how to break into the industry and what kind of life experiences, educational background, whatnot you want to have to do so. So Corey, I think it would be helpful just very, very quickly to mm-hmm. help our audience understand that there is a difference between what you are, which is a visual effects artist and a special effects artist, which is not what you are. Could you give us an mm-hmm. example of the distinction between the two? Totally. So special effects are generally what we now call things that can be filmed on a stage, on a set with a camera. So if you were to, you know, when I grew up, I used to make little movies with my Star Wars figures or my action figures, whether they be little stop motion things or occasionally if I was feeling dangerous or not particularly attached to something, I might set a little fire in the barbecue and <laughs> put my green army man, you know, like, like that would be a special effect, something you could film with your camera and do right there. Whereas a visual effect would be then taking that and then combining that in some way with something else. So that might mean combining that after the fact, you know, taking my burning army men, digitizing that into iMovie or into Adobe After Effects or some computer program and putting behind it a battlefield where it looks like there's a, a battle going on and the foreground, someone runs into a flaming building or something. So visual effects is a post-production process where you combine elements and what can be done in visual effects is very broad. You know, it could be something like an animated character. It could be something, you know, like a dinosaur in a Jurassic World movie would be done with visual effects. Um, you mean they're not but, real, those dinosaurs? Well, there actually are special effects dinosaurs in those movies, too. If you see, a, you know, Chris Pratt touching the face of a velociraptor, and that's a big puppet of a dinosaur, that's what we call a special effect. But then if you cut to that, another shot where then that velociraptor breaks out of the cage and runs off the screen, done in computer animation, that would be a visual effect. Okay. So... At the end of the process, we all work together. You've got the people who are shooting it, the people who are acting in it, the people who are the special effects team on the set, and the visual effects team who is putting it all together afterwards. Okay. I read that visual effects have become such a fundamental element of modern filmmaking that there's rarely a film today that doesn't have some visual effects in it. It's true. What was I watching recently? Even small films. You'll watch a a comedy on Netflix or something. You'll see, you know, Always Be My Maybe or something. Is that the name of that movie? I think so. And, you know, it's a romantic comedy. Or what's another one that I saw? Crazy Rich Asians, right? It's a romantic comedy. It's a story about people, characters, things like that. 
but maybe there's a scene where they're standing and you see a beautiful skyline of the city behind them and they just couldn't get that location at that time so they'll use visual effects to put what we'll call invisible effects behind those people and we'll composite actors standing on a stage or a green screen or maybe even the same place but later we'll bring it in the computer and we'll kind of sweeten it to make it look even more beautiful romantic lovely visual effects are used to enhance that movie magic experience is this something that you think Corey, you were able to pick out because you're a visual effects artist (laughs) is this something that we would the average viewer would be able to pick out now that we're aware that this kind of thing is possible or would you say that they truly are invisible I think if you can tell that there are visual effects in a movie that something has gone wrong. We generally don't want, you know, people that create special and visual effects for movies want our work to kind of be unnoticed. We want to support the story so that you're watching you know, whatever, say you're watching Game of Thrones and you see dragons flying, you want to believe that those dragons are there, even though you know there's no dragons. They could not have actually done that. But you want them to look so good and to be drawn into the story that we believe that they're there. So no, we don't really want people to to know or to even think about the fact that they're artificial in some way. We want you to to believe that it's real so that it doesn't draw you out of the story. When you're working on a film like Mission Impossible or one of the Star Wars films, Mm -hmm. can you give us a sense of how many visual effects artists are working on it along with you? And could you share with us the kinds of things you were responsible for executing? Oh, sure. So movies have large crews. You probably have seen the credits at the ends of movies. And sometimes when it gets to the visual effects part, the column goes from one to two to five to six people across (laughs) and numerous names that go down. And many people go, what on earth could those people be doing? And that's because special effects do not are not made by computers. They're made by artists. And the teams can range from, you know, a few people to a few dozen people to a few hundred people. Pixar films are entirely computer animated. And so every name that you see at the end of those credits is, well, most of them are people that are doing some specialized area of the visual effects process. And something that we use to organize those crews is we have people that specialize in certain areas. For example, the person who designs the creature, models the creature, does what we call the rigging or the bones, the the infrastructure that moves a character, the animators, the lighting people, the compositors, everyone is kind of specialized in their silos. So for something like, you know, the Star Wars prequels, which were the films that I worked on at ILM, I think we probably had a team of, you know, 120 people, I want to say, working on the visual effects specifically for each of those films. It might have been more. It was a while ago. But in that case, you have teams of people. So maybe there's 20 animators and modelers and six riggers and 15 painters. So each of those roles, there would be a small department that would specialize on doing all of the spaceships or the characters or the landscapes and things like that. One of the categories that you'll often see in the credits of movies that has the biggest crew is if you see a movie that's in 3D, there's two ways of creating a stereo 3D movie. One is to film it with a special camera that actually records 
what we call your right eye and left eye. And then there's other films that are converted to 3D. And so those teams are very specialized and often have hundreds of people that are doing the 3D conversion. And so whenever you see those really big lists of names, those are often done by special companies that really just specialize in 3D conversion and can have hundreds and hundreds of people. So what is your specialty? Oh, great question. So over my career, I've I've been working in this field for about 25 years. So when I started out in the industry, I was really interested in puppetry. So one of my first jobs, I got an internship at Jim Henson Productions in New York, and I learned a lot about puppets and creating and crafting puppetry. And then when I started working at ILM, I got an internship at ILM, and I took a real interest in, in that kind of what does digital puppetry look like? So my specialty became rigging, which is the craft of putting the, you know, the skeleton inside of a computer generated character. That means that it has to, you know, a knee has to bend like a knee and a foot has to move like a foot, whether that be with toe bones or, you know, controls for the tongue and the eyes. And when all of those things move, how does the skin around the bone that moves follow that? If you look at your own thumb and you say, bend your thumb towards your finger, your forefinger, and then stretch it away. And you watch how the skin folds and stretches. And you imagine doing that on a computer generated character. That's something that you can kind of mathematically program in to say that when this joint moves, the skin will move in this other way. And some of it can be quite complex. My specialty for a number of years was around the creation and the manipulation of these kinds of characters. So my title on a lot of those movies is a very, my mom loves this title. I was called Creature Supervisor. (laughs) (laughs) I would supervise the creature because it would oversee the whole team that would do all of the aspects, whether that be the modeling, the rigging, the texturing, and the overall animation integration of a computer animated character like for the fans of Menace, I worked on a creature named Watto, who is the Toydarian uh, junkyard owner who owns uh, uh, Anakin Skywalker. I'm a Toydarian! That, that guy. And <laughs> someone named Sabolba, who's in the pod race, who's this purple guy that stands on his arms and his legs are kind of bent up like where his hands would be. And he flies one of the pod race vehicles and he's kind of a devious little dude. So my role on those films was supervising and, and building those creatures, and, and they were a lot of fun. So do you have to be good at math? Math is one of the skills that is certainly helpful in computer animation because Almost everything, not everything, but many of the things that you do are done on, on a computer. And so even though there is software to render and to facilitate this, being able to do some computer coding and programming is helpful. So knowing math and some programming is absolutely helpful in this field. What kind of math is most useful and what kind of coding? And is this something that our young listeners who may be interested in getting into this field should try to study in college or can they hack their way into a job in this industry? Could they take like online classes at a general assembly or Coursera or maybe another platform? Yeah. I mean, most 
I'll be honest. I think most things that people want to learn, we live in magical times where we can learn anything from our public libraries, from online classes and courses. And with the will, we can learn anything. When I first started working at Industrial Light and Magic, it was a really interesting time. So I'm a little older than most of your listeners. So when I started working there, it was the summer that the movie Jurassic Park came out, which was a watershed, a landmark movie in the visual effects industry because it was one of the first, if not the first movie that really proved to people that computer animation could be used to convincingly put a character on the screen. And it started to turn the entire business of visual effects from models, puppets, miniatures, and traditional visual effects to computer animation. And so to me, it was truly a right place at the right time kind of situation, though my entry level job was data entry and even cleaning, physically cleaning film. So one of the places that I was put to work was in a room, a little box with a closed door and a glass window where my job was to take the film and put it through a cleaning machine to actually put it through like a chemical bath and wash the film. Right. So I was cleaning the film. And while I would do this, I was wearing basically a gas mask so I did not inhale the fumes of this machine. And I spent hours in that room every day. And what did I do while I was cleaning the film wearing my gas mask? I was reading C++ for dummies. I was reading books on how to get out of this room because I don't want to stay in this room. I want to go out there where those people are not wearing gas masks. So by learning how to code, learning some basic programming, learning how to use like Unix and Linux and basic operating systems. I was able then to transfer and have the skills necessary to then work on the computer systems that are used for visual effects. Any companies use Linux or Unix-based programming environments. So did you learn this kind of in your own time, Corey, or were you Mm -hmm. taking online classes or how did you learn it? No. So I was learning, I was learning on my own time. Well, I was was on their time, but I was, while I was doing like letting the film go through the machine, I was reading Unix for dummies. So I was learning how to do it. And then on my own time after work, I would get on the machines and I would use the software and I would They made them available to me that I could use their machines. I wasn't being paid for it, but it was having the access to those tools is really helpful. So maybe if I transfer this into something that's applicable nowadays, if you want to learn something and you don't have the resources, if there's a place that you can get access to it, maybe a company that would allow you to try it out or use their computers after hours, as long as it's not destructive or in any way using any intellectual property, that sort of thing. Many companies can allow interns or people that they know to come in and learn on their systems. So what systems are most important for our young listeners to learn? Well, I would say if you want to do high-end computer graphics and computer animation, learning Linux, learning some basic Unix is essential. I think it's still the predominant programming and sort of navigation language for artists at uh, the higher level studios. If you are working more in the commercial 
world, not quite as important. There's many things that are done on Macs and PCs that are done inside of the software applications themselves. One other thing, if you are interested in this, really interested in learning about this is learning Python, which is a programming language that is used a lot for both internet as well as visual programming to create custom special effects and to create, say, like particles and dynamics and things like that that are, that are something that you can actually code rather than create visually. Okay. So the other hat that you wear, Corey, is as a master storyteller and mm -hmm. an Emmy Award winning writer. <laughs> you not only practice these art forms, but you also teach them. Mm -hmm. And I'm guessing that some of our listeners may think that storytelling is something that is nice to be able to do, but not necessary to learn to do well. In other words, it's something that's important in very specific professional contexts, like being an author or a screenplay writer, an actor, even maybe in something like marketing. But that's just the tip of the iceberg, isn't it? I think so. I believe that, that we are all kind of, we're all natural storytellers. People are always telling stories to, say, their family or their friends or themselves. But storytelling is a basic form of communication that really connects individuals. So the kind of storytelling that I teach, sometimes people use it because they're interested in marketing or sales or maybe performing, going on a, you know, a radio show or something or, or on stage at a local storytelling event to tell their story. But I also see people that like to take classes or that, that study storytelling that have found that it's actually a good way for themselves to kind of organize their own lives. I have a woman who took one of my storytelling classes a few times who is a hospice care worker, and she works with people that are going through difficult, you know, kind of end of life moments or decisions or that sort of thing. And she has these really lovely, powerful stories of times that she has helped and been helped by her patients, her colleagues, and the world that she's in. And being able to share those stories back with others is so touching and so powerful to take these experiences that she's having very privately and to communicate back to us things that really connect and resonate in a human way. So generally speaking, I think that if you have never like taken a storytelling class or thought about storytelling as a craft, it's something worth looking into because it's some way to master and to understand the structure of how a story is told and the power that it can have to communicate to those around you. We should let our listeners know, Corey, that we're doing this interview the last day of March 2020. And <laughs> we know what's happening in the world right now. And yeah. certainly here in the United States, we're all sequestered due to the mm -hmm. coronavirus. And yeah. before you and I got on this Skype audio call, you were doing a coaching session for yeah. some professionals. And what was it about that course that you just did or that session that you just held that was so important and so relevant for the times that we're living in right now? We are living in unprecedented times right now. The global pandemic that is really scary and really affecting people on a personal 
uh, level has, of course, hit home with everyone's lives to some degree. And people that work or study, people that are, you know, disrupted from going to college, going to high school, going to work, are feeling distanced and separated from the people in the communities that they're part of. And luckily, we live in modern times where we are not completely cut off. We have technologies, we have video conferencing tools that we can connect with people. But a lot of people still feel isolated and those meetings can feel stilted and awkward and uncomfortable. And so some of the work that I've done is I reach out and I work with companies and teams that help them use these software applications to communicate with each other, learning ways that they can still say, laugh, have fun, connect with each other, even though they're not at the water cooler, even though they're not next to each other, sitting next to each other at a desk. We don't have to look at the tools and the technologies as just a necessary evil. We can look at them as ways to actually play or connect or listen to each other. So a lot of what storytelling and also improvisation teaches us is life skills. It's not just stage skills. It's ways of listening, of sharing control, and above everything else, of adapting to change and dealing with what's right in front of us. So if we look at the situation that's happening right now, which is something that no one could have predicted, and no one, of course, wants to go on for any longer than it has to, is that what we can do is we can adapt and we can use what's right in front of us and we can remember that we're all still connected and we can listen to each other. We can share control and we can be here together, even though we're apart. What are the ingredients needed to tell a great story, Corey? Great question. So stories are ultimately about change. If nothing changes from the beginning of your story to the end of your story, then I would question, is it a story or is it just something that happened? A lot of people say, oh, I have this great story. And then they'll say something that happened to them, but they're no different at the end of it. No real moral, <laughs> you know, there was no, nothing changed at the end of the story. It was just something out of the ordinary that happened. So I look at things like that as like, well, that's the beginning of a story. Or maybe that's the thing that that struck you as interesting. But to make it a story is really about something is different at the end than the beginning. So we can sometimes look at those things, those that that thing that I think was interesting, and then look across and be like, okay, well, how are things, you know, what changed at the end of this? Or, or how am I now that this thing happened? You know, I'm I look at things differently now because I didn't look at them that way before. And then I might think about constructing that into a story where at the beginning life was like this and this is how I would react to things but then one day something happened and that's where I go into the thing that was the unusual thing and at the end of the day ever since that day I was different so fundamentally what makes something a story is about change I love that and it's certainly one thing to write about a great story or share a great story in writing. Mm -hmm. And it's yet another to bring it to life on stage as yeah. you have on the Moth Radio yeah. Hour. What mm -hmm. advice do you have for our young listeners, Corey, who are interested in exploring this medium, maybe have done improv and done some story slams? What are the most important things the best storytellers do? 
I'm going to give everybody a, a little teaching or a little tip here, a technique that's really useful and really helpful for anyone to construct any story. So this works for true stories, fictional stories, what have you. It can be used for something that happened to you that you want to turn into a story, or it could be used for something, maybe it's a case study or something that you have to give a report on. And it's called the Ken Adams Story Spine. And and Ken Adams is a, a teacher, writer, playwright in San Francisco Bay Area. And he kind of distilled down storytelling into a series of seven first lines that could be put together and strung together to create a story. And the lines are going to sound really familiar. It starts with once upon a time, which is, of course, like the beginning of a story, right? Like what's introduced, who the characters are, what's the world of the story, the time of the story, things like that. Once upon a time is the beginning. The next is, and every day, right? What is the normal world? Like, what is everyday life like? Once upon a time, there was a farm girl who lived in Kansas, and every day she dreamed about getting out of here, going anywhere, even over the rainbow. I just need to get off this farm, right? Mm -hmm. Or once upon a time, there was a farm boy who lived on Tatooine. And every day he dreamed about getting off of this planet and going anywhere. I want to go join the space force up in outer space and fly those spaceships up there. You know, like those stories are very similar. The Wizard of Oz and Star Wars are both about a farm hand who wants to go away. Right. So you've got once upon a time and every day. The next line is until one day. Because until one day is about change, right? Something different happens today than on another day, right? Something different. Until one day, some stormtroopers came down and, and killed his aunt and uncle. Until one day, a tornado came and, and brought her over the rainbow. So now we're into storytelling. So the middle of the, of the story spine is because of that, what happened? And because of that, what else happened? Mm -hmm. And because of that, something else happened. So now we're into this part where we're watching and experiencing a character make decisions, be affected, adapt, change, get frustrated, overcome frustrations, succeed. What do they do after they succeed? You know, really getting to watch a character go through because of that, because of that, as many because of that as you need. Until finally, which is the third to last line, until finally what happened, you know, and that's kind of the climax of your story that some final decision or action was taken. And then ever since that day, how is it? You know, what is different now than the beginning of the story? So ever since that day, it's kind of like at the very beginning of our story is fine when we said, and every day life was like this. So ever since that day, maybe life is the other way. Maybe life is the exact opposite. So in Dorothy's case in The Wizard of Oz, if every day she wanted to go over the rainbow and leave, ever since that day, she said, there's no place like home. There's no place like home. All she wants to do is be here. And that's change. And that's storytelling. So we can use this Ken Adams story spine to construct anything into a story by looking at how can I put this kind of framework, this kind of linear framework on something, and all of a sudden, this thing that happened feels like a story. Oh, that's fantastic. And we'll include links to the Ken Please. Adams story spine because that is golden. Golden. Yeah. <laughs> Corey, I'd like to flash back quickly to when you were in college. Yeah. You went to Northwestern and you got your BA in radio, TV, and film. Did you know what you were going to do with that degree when you graduated? And what was your first job? And how did you get it? 
So I have a funny story about that. So my my freshman year of college, I was always very interested in film and film production and working in the movie industry to some degree. I didn't really know what job I was going to do, but I was interested in the field. And I but I made no plans after my first year of college. So I went home thinking that I would just find a job. And Northwestern is on the quarter system. So I got home later than every other college student. So all the jobs were taken. There was no summer work to be had. And so I did get hired actually at the post office. They hire summer college kids, but I got fired from that job because I failed the road test. (laughs) I was unable to drive the Jeep from the wrong, you know, they sit on the other side of the car and, you know, I'm a 17 year old kid anyway. So driving was new to me in the first place. So so now I was really struggling to find something. And luckily, I was able to get a job at Burger King. And that through a family friend, like someone did me a favor because they my parents had a friend who was a manager of a anyway, I got I got a summer job. And I decided that summer, I don't want to work at Burger King next year. So what I did as soon as the summer was over, and I went back to school is that I made a list of all the places that I would like to work. And rather than just reading want ads of places that were hiring, I made, and it was a great exercise for myself. I just made a list of, here's all the things that I like. And in my case, it was, it was, you know, movies and TV shows and film production companies. And I bought a copy of the Hollywood Reporter, which is like a trade journal. And in there, they had listings of the production companies that made all of the shows. So you could see like, here's the address of the company that made at the time, you know, Seinfeld and Friends and, you know, TV shows that I watched or liked. So then I built a a list of here's all the companies I would love, like my dream list of companies. So now instead of just looking for who's hiring, I wrote to MTV and to Jim Henson Productions and to Comedy Central and to Seinfeld and to all these companies and submitted myself as, I love you. I want to work for you. And a lot of them wrote me back. And so then I got invited to interview. So on my spring break, I went to New York and I took the subway and I went to a few companies and I actually was able to get internships at a couple of those companies, Jim Henson Productions and Comedy Central specifically. So it was by, I think, by following what I was actually interested in, not just looking for what jobs were out there, but by looking for where do I want to work? And by reaching out to them, I was able to connect with people there that saw my, my interest and my enthusiasm for them. And some of these places didn't even have formal intern programs, but by being persistent and by reaching out and by letting them know how passionate I was, a guy with no experience other than a summer at Burger King, I was able to get experience. And luckily also for me, because in one summer I worked at two separate companies, my resume went from Burger King to Burger King, Jim Henson, and Comedy Central. So I had some actual experience on my resume that I could use when I went forward. Oh, yeah. Talk about some marquee names to have on your resume. Yeah. So when you graduated, did you have a job lined up? Did you know what you were going to do? Yeah, I did. Because that summer, so that was the summer after my sophomore year in college was when I worked in in New York. And then the next summer was when I was hired for an internship at Lucasfilm. So Industrial Light and Magic also has a very organized, (laughs) a very well-respected intern program. Takes only a certain number, I think only about 15 interns per summer. Uh, Maybe it's more now. But so I was accepted into that internship program because, well, it's actually a funny story. I asked the woman who hired me at ILM 
that summer I was working for her and, you know, I had, of course, on my resume, I had Jim Henson and Comedy Central and everything. But I asked her as I was working at ILM that summer, why did you hire me? And the summer before, when I was making my resume and kind of putting things on there, my dad was really helpful in helping me kind of put my own resume together. And he thought that I should put on my resume that I play golf. Now, I'm not great at golf. In fact, I'm not good at all. I'm pretty terrible at it, but I do play. I was actually on the high school team, but I was more of like the mascot on my high school team than an actual competitor on it. And my dad was like, you know, a lot of executives play golf. You should put golf on your resume. It'll look good. And so, you know, beyond my own thoughts, I did it. And I put on there that I play golf. And sure enough, my manager... <laughs> At ILM, I said, why did you hire me? And she goes, well, it was between you and one other person, but you play golf <laughs> and I play golf. So that's why that's why I picked you, because I thought we could play golf together. Oh, my and gosh. actually we did that summer. We, we went out to the driving range at lunchtime and we played golf. So if there's any takeaway from that story, it might be put things that you're actually, you know, you've got the things, your job experience and the things that you do. But sometimes it's that little line at the bottom about your interests that you might have an interest and the person hiring you has that interest too. And they might feel connected to you. So I got my job. I got my dream job at ILM because of my dad telling me to put golf on my resume. And he tells that story to everyone he plays golf with. <laughs> I bet he does. <laughs> one of the times that hopefully one of the many times that your parents' advice actually paid off. <laughs> yeah, true, true. So that led to actually getting my job. So that, that I got hired back there. When I graduated from college, they offered me a job. Fantastic. Yeah. So two final time for coffee questions, Corey. Could you share a time in your professional life when you really struggled so far? coming out of school. And while you were mm -hmm. in school, sounds like it was pretty darn good. But mm -hmm. maybe you even failed at something. I know I have. But sure. the important thing is here, how did you get through that tough time? How did you power through? And was there a lesson that you may have learned in the process? Sure. I fail a lot. I have learned through my life and also through through doing you know like improvisation that failure is is a good thing to celebrate failure and to not look at it as a put my tail between my legs and shrink away but to put my hands up and say woohoo I failed and to look at that and learn from that and I have done a lot of failing in my career and that's led me to good places there have been times you know I talked a lot about working at, at Lucasfilm but to be honest there were times there that I felt like I was kind of coasting and I was just kind of in what some people call like a kind of velvet prison where this is a great job and I can't believe I have this job, but I'm not challenging myself or I'm not feeling challenged. So I made a difficult decision to leave that place because, because it was comfortable and because I wanted to challenge myself. And my parents, who really liked that I worked there, couldn't believe, like, why would you leave? Why would you leave? But I got to say, by leaving something that, that was comfortable actually made me grow and made me learn things that I didn't know before and challenged me to learn things that I hadn't done before. For example, I talked a lot earlier about software applications and programming and animation. And every company that you work at is going to have their way of doing things. So there was a part of my brain that was like, I don't know that I could work anywhere else because this kind of imposter complex or syndrome, whatever they call it, where it's like, like they're going to know that I don't know anything. You kind of feel like, like I don't really, I, I, I've just got somehow skated by or done. And then you leave that place, you 
you go somewhere else, you go like, oh, I know things. I know how to do that. I have, I have the answers to that. So I guess if I was to encapsulate this into advice that I've learned along the way is don't be afraid to challenge yourself. And if you think you don't know how to do something, you might be right. You might not know how to do that. And that's an impetus to learn it and to figure out how to do that. And every time I failed, every time I've not known something, it's maybe pushed me to, to figure out how to do that and to become better at that. And the more times I fail, the more times I get better at doing it. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that. And just coincidentally, you are the second person today who has shared with me their having experienced the imposter syndrome, something I've experienced as well. And I say that because it's super common. (laughs) This is natural. We're not outliers. We're the norm. It's just most people don't talk about it. And so take comfort from what Corey is sharing with you. The fact that you will likely feel like you're out of your depth and you don't know anything and everybody else knows so much more and use that as kind of fuel to push yourself to study outside of work, to read that extra book, to learn and educate yourself and to ask for help to ask yeah. your can I build, colleagues. Can I build on right? that one thing to add to that? Sure. Which is, and you don't have to pretend that you know everything either. You don't have to act like you have all the answers. I think a lot of people try to cover themselves and they, they pretend like they do know everything. I think there's a community spirit of if I say, you know what, I'm not sure if this is the right way to go. I'm going to put this out there and I'm, I'm open to input, feedback, ideas that are going to make this better instead of kind of the whack-a-mole game of like, I'm going to put myself out there and get hit on the head and say, that's wrong. And then shrink back, like put yourself out there and be willing to get it wrong and to say, I don't know that I'm doing this right, but here's my best try and I'm going to do better. A hundred and 50%, Corey. I am so glad you raised that. Please don't feel that you have to fake it. (laughs) And often everybody knows you don't know, especially when you're new. You know, nobody expects you to know. False confidence. Yeah, the false confidence of, I know how to do everything. We can see through that. I would rather you come and say, I know some things about that and I want to learn more. How would you do it? Excellent advice. Final T4C question, Corey. If you could go back to Northwestern and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice Mm. would you give yourself? That's a funny question, because when I rewind back in time, my my first thought when I went to college was that I always wanted to work in this industry. I wanted to be in, well, in the movie industry, specifically not not visual effects, because I didn't know what path, you know, what paths were going to open for me or, or what was going to happen and follow that. But I started out by studying actually economics, because in my head, I was thinking that to work in the film industry as a producer, say, I would want to have a, a solid like business understanding. And shortly after I started that, I changed my mind. I said, I would rather learn the craft. And later I could pick up the economics. If I was to talk to myself back then, I would have balanced them a little bit more, because I think it is helpful to have a balance between your craft and your kind of life skills and business sense and that sort of thing. And so I'm a big fan of sort of the liberal arts model of having balance in your life and in your brain instead of being single focused on thing, maybe because 
one day you'll have a job interview with someone and they'll look on your resume and they'll see your interest area is something that they're also interested in. Because at the end of the day, you're working with people. You're not working with the resume, the things on the resume. You're going to sit there and talk to the individual. Absolutely. So cast a wider net. (laughs) I think so. Yeah. By the way, P.S., on Corey's bio now, it talks about (laughs) what he has a collection of. And I could give you a hundred guesses and you probably would not know or not nail this one. So I will tell you, Corey has a collection of more than 600 snow globes. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) I have a lot. It's, is that it's just because you live compulsion. in California and you never see the snow? It, it's like this. When I was a kid and I would go somewhere, well, I was I was like a natural collector. I remember whenever I had more than three or four of something, I considered it a collection. So if I had like three or four used shoelaces in my junk drawer, I'm a shoelace collector. Like from a young age, I thought of myself as a collector. So I remember I went to Toronto, Canada with my family and we went to SeaWorld. And then I think I got a Toronto snow globe. And I was like, I'm a snow globe collector. And from about the age of seven on, anywhere that I went, I started looking for snow globes. And it got to a point in my life where it was kind of annoying. On my honeymoon, my wife and I were in Spain and we were in like a, you know, we would get to a new city. And before we did anything, I'd be like, I just need to get a snow globe first (laughs) because I had been in situations where I I waited until the end and then I couldn't find one. So I would go into every tchotchke shop and try to find this little, you know, plastic garbage globe and and then then I could relax and enjoy wherever I was. And I got to be honest, one of my favorite ones is I was in Puerto Rico with my family and I was looking and looking and looking. I finally found one in a store and it was just like a, a very generic. It was like two dolphins on a seesaw in a little plastic dome and Inside, oh, on the outside, there's a sticker that says Puerto Rico. And inside, like in the actual snow globe, there's a little plate that says Florida. (laughs) So whoever, whatever industrious person owned this shop must have had more than one person come in and say, do you have any of this kind of thing? And they couldn't find one. So they ordered some Florida ones, put a sticker that said that. So anyway, that's one of my favorites is my Puerto Rico snow globe. That's actually a Florida snow globe. I love it. So Corey teaches classes for individuals as well as for businesses, schools, or other organizations about how to improve your storytelling craft. And you can learn all about it at CoreyRosen.com. That's C-O-R-E-Y-R-O-S-E-N.com. And Corey's home theater improv company in San Francisco is called BATS Improv, B-A-T-S. And you can find it at Improv org And they have virtual performances going now, I think mostly because of the coronavirus. So it's a great opportunity wherever you live to get to see some wonderful theater and laugh, which is something we don't do enough of and need to do more of. <laughs> Corey, I want to thank you so much for making Thank you. Time this was a for coffee with me and the Time for Coffee community. You are such an incredible guy, so many gifts and talents, and I'm just so appreciative that you made time to talk with me today. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee. 
where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.